Hi there, welcome, and thank you for tuning in. My name is Jason Shoulder, and this is Learning to Fail. People are complicated. I've known a lot of complicated people. My guest today is Wesley Clark Jr., another guy from high school with axes to grind. Wes and I hadn't spoken since 1988, but when I messaged him about my podcast, he said, for you, absolutely. His stories play like a movie, the kind of movie it's fun to watch, but you wouldn't want to star in. Since recording this interview, Wes spearheaded a group of veterans who peacefully stood down the government at Standing Rock. Together, they succeeded in diverting the contentious Dakota Pipeline from traversing and destroying sacred Indian burial ground. That is, until Trump took office and ruined everything. But that doesn't make Wes any less of a hero. In fact, it might make him even more of one. I have never been more honored to call someone like Wes my friend. Before we roll today's interview, I want to say how grateful I am to everyone who has subscribed to Learning to Fail and downloaded the episodes currently available. Numerous people have written to say they felt like they were right in the room with us. That is precisely the way I want these conversations to feel. I still marvel at the fact that people are willing to take time out of their lives to talk to me, much less listen. The fact that so many of you have been motivated to take the additional step of writing to me is truly humbling. So thank you. I will do everything in my power to keep bringing you an experience that is at once personal and engaging. Learning to Fail podcast is my avenue for expanding the way I think and the things I think about. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about Learning to Fail and encourage them to tell theirs. Take a moment to rate us on iTunes and check out our website for additional information about each of the people we interview. While you're there, please visit our Donate and Amazon pages. Each page will give you clear instructions on what to do. For the time being, we are a completely donation-based podcast, so all of our episodes are being brought to you by you. Our donation page will allow you to make one-time or recurring donations. Our Amazon portal enables you to support the podcast without spending any extra money of your own. Please bookmark our Amazon page and start your shopping there every time you visit or buy anything on Amazon. The most helpful thing you can do is simply to listen to the podcast and encourage others to do the same. The world will be a better place when we can all start learning to fail together. Now let's get rolling on my conversation with Wes Clark Jr. It's a relatively short one, so fasten your seatbelts and plug in your iPhones. You're not going to want to miss a word that comes out of his mouth. I haven't seen you or even spoken to you since 1988, I think. Um, I graduated in 97, and I remember coming back for your guys' graduation. And I remember, I, I, re I have some memories of you from your graduation weekend. Um, they're kind of abstract, but... That's what I remember. So my, anyway, my memories of that weekend are hazy, dude. I'm sure they are. I'm sure they are. It was a long time ago. Uh, no, I mean, uh, yeah, it's the memories I have are irrelevant to anything except that I know that that was when I saw you last because I remember you saying shit. 
Um, not talking smack, just just like I remember some things that some inter some uh, interactions we had. So, um, but first of all, I mean, I was blown away to I I've been following your dad a little bit. Um, I mean, not recently, but every once in a while, I would see like Wesley Clark on the news. I'm like, holy shit! I went to school with his son, and people are like, yeah, whatever, dude. No one really cares. But I mean, I always thought it was kind of cool, and I thought it was really interesting that he was sort of uh, showing up in the world as a leader and somebody that was really respected, and this general that was, you know. Looked... Yeah, it was. It was weird, man, because when I was going to school with you back then, I mean, he was a. I think he was a lieutenant colonel or a colonel. And I remembered my roommate, uh, sophomore year, made fun of me because my dad was in the Army. Well, you know, we were, we were assholes at Fountain Valley. You know, I mean, like, I remember that you were this military kid. No, that's, that's why I got moved into your dorm, man, because Mark Orr, like, said, oh, your dad's in the Army. You're all stupid and poor. And I punched him out. And then they moved <laughs> me into the southeast dorm. Uh, were Bill and me and God, who the hell else was with us? There were like three of us in that room. And the one right across from you and Pogi. Oh my God, Pogi! Oh, so you were? Did you live with Shane? No, no, that was next Shane. Yeah, did you live with Shane and? Uh... No, no, it was Bill Kip and and oh, someone Phil Crowder. else. I can't remember who. No, not Phil Crowder. No, Phil was living Phil with had Ch the archway room. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you were living across from me? I don't think I realized that. Oh, yeah. Don't you remember, like, spring semester, there was dorm boxing, and Cole, I, like, punched out Cole Frady's, and then, uh, God, what was that dude from Oklahoma's name? Cole. Joe Mahan. Oh, Joe Mahan. No, yeah. no. Joe Mahan then beat the fuck out of me. <laughs> yeah. That guy was, he's a crazy motherfucker. He was a bad motherfucker, man. Yeah, he is. He was, he was tough. He was, uh, he threw me into a windowsill one day, because I was showing empathy for his girlfriend who he was in the middle of a fight with and he got really pissed yeah, no, at me. he was he was hardcore dude yeah so what do you what do you want to ask me um well i mean i'm kind of curious where you've been for the last 30 years i mean um you know this podcast is called learning to fail and i oh, think okay. it's, i think it's an interesting concept and i think it's something you know failure is something all people have in common to some degree and and I think, you know, the degree to which we succeed as humans, let alone um, as success, uh, you know, I, people who are successful on the outside, which is less interesting to me than people who are successful on the inside. I mean, I think it's that's determined by how we navigate failure. And and so, you know, ever since I've told people I'm doing this, everyone has the response you had. You know, like, oh, I'm an expert. I've been failing all my life. And oh, no question about it. Yeah, so I've I mean, made the wrong choices so many times. So I, you know, so I'm kind of curious about what some of those are, but this isn't about you having to, you know, live your relive your worst nightmares. Um, no, they're not nightmares. They're, they're all learning experiences. Look, I mean, I, <clears throat> I did. I went to Georgetown University School of Foreign Service after uh, Fountain Valley. I was, uh, you know, I graduated from there. I went into the Army as an Army officer for a few years. Uh, scout platoon leader, troop executive officer, and then squadron maintenance officer for 27 Cav and 110 Cav, which were at the time uh, part of the 4th Infantry Division at Fort Carson. Um, 
I got all one blocks and everything. My, you know, my dudes took first place in gunnery. We took first place in our test. We took first place in athletic competitions and iron horse week. It was like all success. And then I got out of the army in 96 and life changed. <laughs> so what, what happened? Do you remember Porter Berry? Because he lived next door to you with Alex Allred. Oh, yeah. Porter, was he the kid who broke his arm uh, skateboarding? That probably sounds like Porter, although that might have been Dave Murphy, too. I'm thinking of Dave Murphy. I'm thinking of Dave Murphy. No, Porter, he was also from Oklahoma. And he left school. We kind of kept in touch over the years. And when I was in the Army, he'd occasionally drive up from Oklahoma, and we'd hang out for the weekend. And... uh, Porter was like, dude, what do you do when you get out of the army? And I didn't know what I was going to do. And he goes, well, I'm working on this movie, A Time to Kill. And dude, if you come out to Hollywood, you can make $100 cash a day and all your meals are covered. <laughs> and like now you hear that and you're like, who would take that offer? Right. But at the time I was like, dude, $100 a day and all my meals covered is pretty awesome. So I wound up coming out here and I PA'd for a while, which really sucked. I mean, you work like 16, 17 hour days sweeping floors and stuff. And then I got a job at Jersey Films as a creative executive. Well, I started out as this dude's assistant who had 21 assistants in the previous three years. He was like, I don't know if you ever heard of Scott Rudin, but he's known as one of the most difficult people to work for in Hollywood. We had a dude who worked for Scott for two years, came into our office and like quit before the end of the day. And then he took the phone log with him, which I thought was hysterical at the time. Yeah, they but, do that. People will steal anything they can. Yep. So, but, you know, I, I got out of the Army. I know how to accomplish tasks. Did it suck, like, being some dude's assistant? <laughs> yes. Uh, but then I got, like, promoted to a CE. I did it for six months. And we got this book in called A Scanner Darkly by Philip Dick. And I was like, I read that book, and I was like, I fucking love that book. And I adapted it into a screenplay in, like, two weeks. And at the time, I was... I was dating Judd Apatow's sister who ran his company. And she's like, oh, my God, what are you doing working for these guys? You should, like, quit and write full time. So that was, like, the first biggest mistake of my life uh, is I did that. Because every job I've had, I always, like, I live as cheap as possible, and I just save up the money. So right. if I need to make a move or a change or something, I got it. So I had, like, you know, 10 grand saved up. And I'm like, fuck, dude, I could live off that for, you know, seven or eight months easy. While, you know, I pursue a career as a writer, a friend of mine had, like, finagled the rights to some sci-fi book, and I adapted it. Of course, by the time I adapted it, we were already, you know, four months into a six-month option. By the time all the agencies read it, it was going to go up. We were, like, at the last month. And the dude who, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but he's one of the producers on... um, Oh, no, I can't remember the name of the show. The HBO show with the fucking dragons in it. The dragons? Yeah. You mean the new the House Jon of... Snow. Um, uh, well, not House of... What's it called? The thing everybody watches that they're obsessed with that I don't give a shit about? Game of Thrones. Game, Game of, of Thrones. Thrones. Yeah, anyway, right. yeah, I don't care about this that. This dude, he's a producer of Game of Thrones for the same reason he's going to be a producer on our movie because he's got the rights to all these science fiction libraries all of a sudden. And then he came back to us and he said, well, you know... We can move forward with this if I'm also a producer, and now you got to pay instead of ten thousand bucks for like a six month option, it's got to be fifty. And we were like, we're fucking broke, we're done. So we walked away from that, 
And I'm like, fuck it. I'm going to go to business school. I made a living like reading scripts as well as tutoring people for SATs, like high school kids. Right. I can't imagine what their parents thought. Like this, like a 26 year old dude shows up at their house thinking of cigarettes to like teach their child math. <laughs> well, it's just... but, it, but it paid the bills, man. It paid the bills. I mean, you so, were a smart guy. I mean, I'm sure you made a good impression. Well, look, I've always tried to get by without connections or anything else just because, you know, I believe that hard work pays off and you learn a lot no matter what you're doing. Um, so I did that for a while and I'm like, well, I'll apply to business school. I did that. And I got this crazy fucking phone call from this guy named Mohammed Sachabu, who was the like head of the Bosnian mission at the UN. He calls me up. He's like, look, Wes. And he went to like Tulane. So he's like as American as it come. The guy played like football there. And he goes, listen, uh, you know, we want to do a movie about Sarajevo, and I've got an Academy Award-nominated director, $6 million, total use of the Bosnian Army and Air Force, like interest from John Malkovich, Julia Armand, Richard Gere, and Bono says we can have any song from the U2 library. Would you be interested in doing it? Wow. And, and as what? You what know, were you going to be? You the say? PA? As, a, as, as the <laughs> producer over, over in Hollywood to try and put stuff together. So I'm like, fuck yeah, I'll do it. Yeah, totally. So... I was like, I got into a couple of business schools and I was like, nah, I don't want to look at spreadsheets for the rest of my life. Um, so I got a hold of the thing and I realized the director was like 92 years old and he was nominated for an Academy Award for a movie called Battle of the Nerepa in 1967. And he was popping heart pills like every two minutes and he hadn't finished his last two movies. So getting a completion bond on it would have been like nearly impossible. But I met these guys. They flew over to the States. They stayed in a nice hotel. I met with Julie Armand who said, well, we'll have to see what the script looks like. Uh, I was over in Europe and then suddenly the war in Kosovo happened. And like the first couple of days I was over there in Belgium to go to Luxembourg to have this. But I had sushi with John Malkovich in Luxembourg in the middle of him shooting that vampire movie as the war started. And he's telling me all about, you know, let me tell you about the Serbs. It's, and I got back. I, the script came in. It wasn't that good. I knew none of the talent was going to buy off on it. Oh, and when I met Richard Gere, he's like, hey, yeah, good luck with that movie, man. Like, no interest at all. Oh, uh, really? So, so then I'm like, fucking low on money. I'd written another script. It didn't sell. Um, I moved over to an island called Brach, which was near Split, because I had a Croatian-American girlfriend at the time, and her family had a house there, and I figured, fuck, dude, I can live cheap and easy over there as I put this thing together. So I figure I'll, I'll fix the movie, and then I get a call from Muhammad. He says, well, there's a problem. I'm like, what's the problem? He goes, they've already spent $2.5 on the budget. So this is the first doing, I hear of this. Doing I keep, what? I keep being told there's no budget. Well, yeah, no, good question. Because until you have a script to move forward with, you don't spend any money. But then right. I realized they were spending this money to, like, fly over not only to see me in Los Angeles, but to fly around and fly in, like, costume designers from Italy and stuff and stay in nice hotels. And I realized, fuck, man, these guys have spent $2.5 million. So I go down to this place kind of north of Dubrovnik called Stone. 
and it's supposedly the oldest restaurant in that part of Europe. So that's what they said. Who knows? It's like you're sitting down there right on the Adriatic, and there's oyster beds and stuff. And the director's name was Velko Belayic. And he sits down at the table, and I'm like, as a producer of the movie, you're fired. Boom. And then he goes, you can't fire me. I made part of the movie for Tito, you fuck. And then he gets up and he storms away. <laughs> um, I get a call the next day or the, the, the day after from my dad who goes, you need to go to Sarajevo today. And at this point, this is probably like five or six months after the war in Kosovo. I'm like, why do I have to go there today? And because that's a long drive, man. That's like eight or nine hours through a couple different countries on a dangerous road. And you got to go through several different military checkpoints. And uh, he goes, we can't talk about it. You have to go. I got like five more calls from different people at NATO. So I get with my girlfriend. We drive this road. You ever drive in the Balkans at all? Um, I hitchhiked from uh, Vienna to the coast in Croatia during the war. So, okay, so you understand, like, there's no fucking guardrails. Like, every cliff is like a 400-foot cliff with a little tiny car that's been burned out at the bottom of it. Oh, yeah, no, right. <laughs> there's, yeah, there's just no... Trucks passing going, like, 60 miles an hour around hairpin turns. I mean, it's, it's like, it's insane. But anyway, we get into Sarajevo at, like, 11 o'clock at night. And I think it was Ambassador Galbraith, who was there at the time, and he calls me upstairs and he goes... Okay, first of all, you're not in trouble. And I'm like, what? And he goes, you're part of a Bosnian government blackmail operation that's about revenge for some New York Times story about President Izebegovic's son or something like that. Meanwhile, I've been paid $10,000 for seven months' work that I'm working all the time on. But they're like, oh, you've been paid $10,000. I'm like, yeah, motherfucker. That's, you have to pay people to do work. Um, and he says, listen, um, all your phones are tapped. They're tapped by the French. They're tapped by the Russians. They're tapped by the Serbs. They're tapped by the Croatians. And they're tapped by the British. Uh, everybody can hear every word you say over every line. And um, everybody knows who you are and where you are. And there's rumors circulating you're a CIA agent. And there's a hit team coming up to kill you from Montenegro tomorrow. So my advice, friend, is to leave the Balkan Peninsula. So that was the end of my movie producing career. Um, I went back to Brach. I stuck around like a day or two. I figured they wouldn't find me. I mean, I wasn't going outside a lot. Um, and then I, you know, took off back to the States, had a couple more failures at writing. Um, you know, because as a writer, you think, oh, someone's going to read it. It's going to get made right now. And it takes five or 10 years, man. And even if somebody options your script or something else, it's it's not enough money to live off of for more than a month or two, most of the time. Yeah. And that's if the thing ever gets made. So eventually you get that fantasy out of your head, and I'm like, well, i got to do something else. So my girlfriend, who I was still with at the time, we moved to New York. I got a job in advertising as a new business uh, director for a boutique agency that handled mainly Internet clients as well as Bear Stearns and Cantor Fitzgerald's E-Speed. And I moved out there in like 2000, had a great time, learned a lot about advertising. Um, and then 9-11 happened, and there went our biggest clients. Uh, Cantor Fitzgerald, who were at the top of the World Trade Center, were killed. 
And also that was the dot-com collapse. So all our dot-com companies collapsed. So we were left with Bear Stearns and I think a piece of a Rite Aid account. And then the agency folded and went out of business like three months later. Because I brought in only, you know, I think $200,000 in billing in the six months I've been there. It's just the economy was dead. So that was a failure for sure. Um, the producing was a failure for sure. And then suddenly after 9-11, my writing career picked off again. And oh, so tell me about that. What happened? Well, a, a friend I'd worked with at Jersey Films had read some stuff that I'd written. said, you know, how about this movie uh, at Warner Brothers? I'm like, yeah, I'll write that. <clears throat> so I wrote it, and it was about like a rescue team, like Coast Guard and Naval and stuff. And But they were like, Make it present day, but don't make it anything about Muslim terrorism. I'm like, okay. So I made it about a war with North Korea, which they didn't like. <laughs> so I got <laughs> that, fired that might be off worse. That. that might be a worse choice. Than... Yeah, no, no, totally. So I got fired off that project, but the pay was pretty good. I got hired by another guy named Bob Court to write a script that he wanted something that was like based on the biblical verse Samuel 2.12, you know, where uh, – the king sees Bathsheba, and he's jealous. And it's the whole story of uh, King David and Uriah. But he wanted it set in modern-day Iraq. And I'm like, fuck, yeah, I'll write that. Of course, I was done with it in, like, 2002 or three, and nobody still wanted to touch anything in the Middle East at that point. Um, so that didn't go anywhere, although it paid. And then I was going to write um, a biopic about this writer named Donald Goins, for um, Dr. Dre. And Donald Goins is kind of, if you're going to point to a writer that kind of epitomizes gangster rap and kind of the, the literary roots of it, it would have to be Donald Goins. So I read all his books. I met with him. He lowballed me on an offer. Um, and I was like, nah, because that's half what I got paid for writing the last thing. So that was like the last paid offer I think I got for a while. Um, my friend at the time, here's another great failure. Uh, my friend at the time was a guy named David Ayer, who was a writer, and he was like brother to me for several years. Uh, but then he essentially got me blackballed out of the business uh, without me even knowing it. I was a writer on a project at Warner Brothers, uh, he was supposed to be the director. He said, I don't care what the fucking studio says, do it this way. And then he took the script the night before it was turned in. I didn't even realize this till years later. Got drunk and rewrote the whole thing, turned it in, so I was fired like the next week by Warner Brothers. Uh, oh, my God. And then I was like, holy fuck. And, and I didn't realize how badly I'd been screwed over until like six years later. But that's... That's later in the story. So then I'm like, well, fuck Hollywood. I'm not going to do this. I need to put my skill set to use, which is kind of task organization and, and project management. And I became a, a project manager for a Dutch wind turbine company that was looking to expand in the U.S. that had a direct drive, like a 900-kilowatt uh, generator, about a 60-, 70-meter um, tower on it. So I put a couple of these up around the Midwest 
And, you know, putting them up was easy. That's easy to figure out how to do and hire cranes and work with crane workers and construction workers and how to put all this together. That was simple. But once they were assembled, the generators kept shorting out. And as the project manager, I was kind of involved in every step of the process, as well as hiring all the repair crews. And I remember asking, what, why are these generators shorting out? And there were a lot of theories, and one of the theories was, because they'd recently outsourced their manufacturing to China, is that there was some kind of screw-up uh, in the actual manufacturing of the generators. I brought this up to the board. And you worked for uh, dysfunctional companies before, right? Yeah, well, actually, no. I've been self-employed. so ex I, I've owned my own companies for most of my life, so in a sense, I would say I've exclusively worked for dysfunctional companies. Um, okay, well, that's Because I've, I've run this them. Is, <laughs> this is one of those things where a bunch of like billionaires bought what was a really great IP and a design for something, but then hired like four or five consecutive CEOs that didn't know what they were doing. And I remember telling the CEO, who was a Dutch guy, listen, you, I'll tell you exactly what your problem is. It's the insulation paint in your generators, and you got 10 of them sitting on a fucking dock in Los Angeles waiting to be shipped, and they're all going to be bad, too. And every time a generator goes bad, I mean, you're talking about four to $500,000 to replace it in something that's only a, you know, a $2 million project to begin with, tops, at least back then. So they were going to be hemorrhaging money. And they told me, you're not an expert. You don't, you're not an engineer. You don't know what you're talking about. And so they fired me in like 2010. And sure enough, four to five months later, after they had six more of these generators go out, I was vindicated and told, yeah, it was the insulation paint on the generators. <laughs> but it didn't matter. I wasn't going to go back to it. I, I wound up writing a novel. I went through a really fucking messy divorce, uh, worked with my dad on a couple different startups as a consultant and saw failures in every one of those. And most failures go back to the decision maker, not the people uh, working for them. Uh, nine times out of 10, what I've seen in every company that fails is, you know, is executives who don't understand the jobs of the people working beneath them. They don't know what the mission is of the company. They come to work late and leave early, and they can't be bothered with the day-to-day -day actual running of the business. And I see this repeatedly in every industry I've been in since the Army. And it's, I don't just find it alarming. I find it a reason for why there's so much waste and failure in the business world to begin with, is instead of promoting from within, companies go and they try and find someone from business school who'd like to make a lot of money on the stock, and they're all thinking about the stock instead of the bottom line of the company. And I saw that that error played out with a food truck franchise that wanted to go public that we consulted for, where they'd raised $6 million. The trucks themselves, maximum would have been about 150 each. Uh, to give you an idea of how much a food truck used to be able to make in 2009 and 10, the grilled cheese truck in L.A. I think was pulling in about $845,000. The full cost of the truck, the crew, and everything else was something like maybe four hundred. So they're making like four hundred thousand dollars in cash. Um, instead of putting that money into more trucks, they put it into lawyers, and they put it into real estate deals, and they put it into trying to pump up stock and other things instead of putting it into the core business. Right. 
Um, so, of course, they failed. I worked with a vertical agriculture company, one of these, you know, kind of a farm and a shipping container thing. There's four or five of those companies out there, so I'm not going to name it at all. But it had, I mean, phenomenal technology. The testing on it was great. It had corporate partnerships like up the Yazoo that were going to help it succeed. But the guy who funded it didn't have the time to run it. So he appointed his friend who designed it, who was a kind of older engineer, had, you know, insecurity issues. And then he wound up alienating all the JV partners. He was indecisive about how to employ them, how to actually generate revenue with it. And then, of course, you know, another great tech fails. But it usually comes down to people thinking that, you know, let's try and make a million dollars instead of let's just try and make $100,000. It's people who are aiming too high, too soon for products and projects. Yeah, I get that all the time with my company because, I mean, I invented this yoga product. And, I mean, granted, it, it's, it's weird that it's not bigger and more widespread than it is because people really love it. But whenever I try to hire a salesperson, they're like, you should try to get it into Whole Foods and REI, and, and they shoot for the stars, you know? I'm like, why don't you yeah. just try and get it in every yoga studio in Kansas? You know, go yeah. like go someplace start, start where... Start small. Yeah, and where people feel ignored. You know, like, go mm -hmm. go find people who... You know, you go to New York, you get in the big studio, you know, you try to get in Yoga Works, all these places... You know, that's, they're very hard nuts to crack. Like, they're making a decision that's 36 studios wide. Instead of one studio, it's like, yeah, I'll put eggs in my studio. Those things are great. You know, like, people are always looking at something so huge. They want to hit a grand slam their first time up at bat. And I'm just like, businesses grow no, you gotta pace slowly yourself, all man. you, you got to pace yourself. Yeah. yeah. And you have to know what your capabilities are. I mean, if you have the connections and the pull to do something like that, great, do it. But most of us don't. I certainly never did. Yeah, I think very few people. Uh, most people, you know, success happens gradually all of a sudden. This <laughs> is yeah. my favorite so anyway, phrase around that. So, yeah, is, so, this so is now, take me back to where is, you are. Now we're into post-divorce. We're just a couple years ago. Is this, this, is this the Croatian-American woman that you were married to? Or? No, no, no. I, that was a whole other mistake I made in life, although it gave me two beautiful children, so I don't regret a single moment of it. Which one? Um, the marriage or the Oh, Croatian? my first marriage. My first marriage. The Croatian girl I broke up with like a week after 9-11. Okay. It was one of those moments of, holy, because, you know, there was the Twin Towers came down, and then there was an anthrax attack like two blocks from our house on the Upper West Side. So I was like, fuck it, man. If I'm going to die, this is not the person I want to be with. Like, not as a bad thing, but, you know, you, a lot of people made a lot of decisions that fall. I'll just right. put it that way. Yeah. Um, you know, so then then I, I saw um, my old friend David Ayer again, and he was like, yeah, dude, I did it. You know, there's only so many writing jobs. I didn't want the competition. That's life, homie. It's business. And I was like, holy fuck. And then a year later, he came out with that movie Fury, and literally like 90% of the dialogue in it came out of my mouth. Holy and I realized shit. then that I was used by somebody because his earlier movie Training Day was all taken from this friend of his named Blue. And then he started becoming friends with this cop from Maryland before he did that Jake Gyllenhaal movie. And I realized this is somebody who just uses people, takes their stories, takes them out to a stake, 
every four months, so they think they're buddies. But in the end, he he destroys all the people he steals stuff with. So I was failing in terms of who my friends were and who I thought my friends were, which is the greatest failure you can ever have. Yeah. Because if you can't trust your friends, I mean, who the fuck can you trust? Anyway, around this whole time, I've been doing, started doing Young Turks like in 2004 or five, just because I liked Ben and, and Jenk a lot. And that just kind of continued off and on. I took a break for a couple of years. I got diagnosed with kind of severe PTSD in about 2010. Uh, so I didn't really, definitely didn't want to be on camera or, or take part in stuff. And then in the last year or two, I've still been doing a lot of writing and stuff is moving forward and I'm getting paid and something got optioned and I wrote a book and I'm doing Young Turks more now and I'm involved in right now trying to, you know, save the Sioux tribes out in North Dakota from having their river contaminated. So tell me what you can about that. I know there's some things you're not going to be comfortable talking about, I'm sure. but um... Well, there's a lot of other things I'm doing other than just that right now. I, I dropped everything in my life in September to join the climate mobilization movement. because okay. What's that? Through all this stuff, and it led me to some of the avenues that I pursued with my dad and, and by putting up windmills and other stuff. In 1999, when dad was head of NATO, he pulled me aside and sat me down after dinner one night. He said, look... The Europeans uh, Science Commission came in and they briefed us about climate change. And he's like, this is going to occur in your lifetime. And it's going to be, you know, this severe. And so we talked about it, you know, repeatedly over the years. I went and put up windmills thinking that would do something to solve it. Um, and then I'd heard the idea of climate mobilization. I thought, that's it. And I quit what I was doing. Uh to work with them and, and to help build a movement that's going to help save human civilization from what are going to be the rapidly approaching extinction-level effects of the climate emergency. So can you tell me what climate, and, climate mobilization means? Because I haven't heard that phrase except from you. Sure. What it means is that we are facing a threat that's about seven years out from genuinely and harshly impacting Americans. Uh, it's that close, the threat of it. Not extinction, not flooding. It's about, you know, changes in the weather. It's about the unpredictability of frost and heat waves so that it kills crops and it damages crops. At the same time, it's coupled with, you know, what people call ecological overreach, which is that we're using up too much water for our population and we're not managing our resources properly. So climate mobilization attempts to tackle all these things by using like a World War II scale economic mobilization that unites government, labor, academia, and business towards non-ideological, pragmatic solutions and how we go forward. It means that you use the money to build the infrastructure that we're going to need to survive the changes we've already set in motion. Uh, it means we build the infrastructure to get off the hydrocarbon industry uh, as quickly as possible and wind down use of hydrocarbons. And it also means sequestering as much carbon as we can as quickly as we can. Because right now we're at the start of a J-curve. Is it hot right now where you are, or is it cold? It's unseasonably warm. 
it's unseasonably warm here too. And every month for the last 15 months has been the hottest month on record. And what people may not understand is, you know, the sun is actually at its solar minimum right now in terms of the power of the radiation it's putting in it. It goes through nine and 11 year cycles and it's going to be back up to full strength within another like year or two. So what are the temperatures going to be like then? And by the way, China's building enough coal plants in the next five years that it's going to double the amount of uh, CO2 emissions compared to what Europe uses with all of its coal right now. Hmm. This is, by the way, we're already permanently at 400 parts per million. And what people may not understand is it can take 100,000 years for the carbon to work its way out of the atmosphere. So this isn't like it's suddenly going to get real hot and then, oh, we'll just hide out for a couple of years. Uh-uh. It's permanent. Unless we act now, it's permanent. And I have an 11- and 12-year-old son, and I'm not going to let that fucking happen. I failed at a lot of things in my life. I'm not going to fail at this one. So what, is, so, so what do you do from day to day? Like, what's your... What's I'm your day-to-day -day about a climate mobilizer? It's, I'm on the phone usually with 50 or 60 people a day, 50 or 60 emails a day, knitting together constellations of peoples in different industry and positions of power to start to coalesce and push for this thing. And what's the vision? Like, what are you... I mean, you must be thrilled about the new uh, election. <laughs> I am thrilled about the new election because it's got a lot of people off their ass to understand that we cannot wait and we must act now. There's two options. I mean, the first option is we come up with a great plan, and Trump is like, holy shit, I can be the man who saved the world, and he does it. The other plan is I'm going to keep pumping oil, and I'm going to keep burning coal, and I'm going to keep fracking and polluting the atmosphere, in which case the answer is no, you are fucking not going to be able to do that. What people don't understand is they don't have anything to lose at this point. If we continue as we are, a lot of us are going to die in about the next 15 to 20 years. And it's not going to be from old age or smoking or anything else. It's going to be from the direct effects of climate change. I can put an overlay on any map in the world where there's water crises, and you will see political violence surrounding it in every direction. That's only going to be exacerbated in the coming decade. Make sense? Yeah, I mean, I've never heard those two things put together before. That makes that makes a lot of sense when you say it. Well, it's it'll it'll strike in a way that it's going to hit the actuarial tables first. I mean, the advantage we have right now, the reason to do it right now, is because we've never had so much capital available to do so much good stuff with. And the reality is, in about 2023 or 2024, someone who's bought their home within five to 20 feet of sea level, well, it's not that their home is going to be flooded, but when they're done paying with their 30-year mortgage, there won't be another buyer because an insurer won't insure it. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So what will happen is you'll have all these nest eggs that people have saved for for their life, you know, not to dismiss also the cities of Miami, Houston, uh, Manhattan, and others who are going to be threatened by this. And it'll mean that they'll be uninsurable, which means the most expensive real estate in the country will be uninsurable, which means 
you're going to have a capital collapse caused by it. You couple that with long-term drought in California, in the Southwest, the draining of the Ogallala Aquifer, which will be empty by 2023, and you're looking at a real problem. We probably got another 50 or 60 years after that until the acidifications of the oceans kills the phytoplankton, which provide the oxygen we do, in which case it's kind of game over for everyone. But there's something we can actually do about it. And I spend a lot of my life anxious about it and not sure what to do. And the answer is quite simply climate mobilization. So I joined that. And around the same time, I got a call out of the blue from someone I didn't even know who said, hey, man, Russell Means picked me to save the Sioux people. So I'm calling you for your help, brother. And I'm like, dude, who the fuck is this? He's like, oh, I got your number from so-and-so. I'm like, okay, what can I help you with? Who's Russell Means? Russell Means is a big Native American activist. Yeah, I know. Um, well, he was also an actor for and, a while. He's a big and He was an actor, and, and, and Pearl Means, I guess, his wife, is this guy's in touch with. And he got me on the phone with a woman named Phyllis Young about a day or two later. And Phyllis is one of the, was one of the tribal elders out at Standing Rock. Um, and she was watching her people being beaten and abused and shot at with rubber bullets uh, by a corporation that was breaking the law. And a government that is violating its treaty obligations to the Sioux people. You know, a lot of people don't realize they, they look at that tribe out there and they say, oh, look at those good for nothings, welfare, whatever. So people can understand, you know, aside from initially being a nomadic people who were then roped into a much smaller place after we killed off all their buffalo uh, and massacred them and drove them on the reservations, we did treaties with them, which, you know, set out the limits of the reservation. Then after World War II, between 1948 and 1953, the U.S. government, through the power of eminent domain, seized all their farmland, you know, bottom land, the stuff that's near the river, so they could build a hydroelectric dam. And they moved all these tribes up to rocky, clayed soil that they couldn't feed themselves off of or make a living off of. So it made them economically dependent instead of independent. And congressional studies in, you know, 1999 said the government took too much land to build the dam and they could give some of it back to the, the tribes. And some of that land is that land that that pipeline is going across. Of course, the Congress didn't implement, the president didn't implement it, because our leaders don't act on issues of right or wrong. They act on issues of political expediency and money. So I just decided, you know... I, I can't say I decided, and this is going to sound really corny, uh, but I had like a religious epiphany, and you know I'm going out there because I feel that Jesus Christ has demanded I go out there because we're mistreating these people, and what we do to the least of our brothers, we do to Him. So I'm going out with 500 unarmed veterans on December 4th through 7th, and we're going to try and stop work on the pipeline, and we're going to relieve the Sioux who have been on the front lines for four months and have been beaten, bloodied, bruised, bit by dogs, shot in the face with pepper spray, shot with rubber bullets, 
put in dog kennels when they're arrested, as well as have many of their rights of freedom of speech and assembly completely abrogated by the United States. And I find it intolerable. And I'm not going to put up with it. And I hope there's a lot of other Americans that aren't going to put up with it. Because the end result of it is another pipeline that's going to pump more carbon in the atmosphere to kill our children. So billionaires who already have almost infinite money can have just a little bit more. So that's where I stand, Jason. That's what I'm up to, Bill. Well, you've come a long way from our swim team. We have. <laughs> well, I so think what else can I tell you, my man? Well, I think it's, I mean, um, I'm going to go back to the beginning. And I, I just, I want to okay. say, I want to say a couple things about you that you don't know that I feel. Because um, I have, I have pretty vivid memories of you from high school. Um, and I remember you being um, it, you you had this interesting like dichotomy of it was it was important to you to be you know one of the cool kids, but you always had this uh, decency about you. You had a a, a pretty clear sense of right and wrong and you were decent you were decent in ways that not everybody we went to high school was decent not everyone yeah i gotta say though most of the kids at our school a lot of them turned out pretty decent in the long run in the long run but in high school you know i I was but i was still look i was still a dick in high school you know i'm not going to say i was without sin i was a victim and a victimizer like most people are there's, there was nothing especially, I thought, special about me. But, you know. Well, I think that's what I'm referring to, though, is like that was your the struggle I saw, you know, or like the – struggle might be the wrong word, but like the inner conflict, you know. Um, no, it was. I was, a, I was a poor kid in a rich kid's school, and then uh, even my friends that I knew from town because I got to know them from this school, then my friends in town were – you know, I was the poorest of them, so I was always trying to fit in and bounce back between one group and another, but I was never really part of any clique or, or group, per se, when I was there. I, I guess I always thought you kind of were in with the uh, the kind of group from your class, all those guys, Bill and Jeff. Oh, and... I, I, well, I was never that close to Bill or Doug, and they were the kind of popular dudes in the class. I, you know, I'm always friends with Phil because Phil's not like I am. And, you know, I saw, I was lucky enough, I got to have lunch with Jeff Benton a couple weeks ago, which I thought was hysterical. Yeah. Jeff was a good guy. He was a good guy. Yeah, he was a good guy. Um, No, I mean, I I wasn't trying to say that uh, no one we went to school with was a good person. That wasn't my point. Um, No, but no, there were some definite assholes. Yeah, and it was and bullies just, and and people and who sort money of, oriented people. Yeah, there were there were a, yeah there was a whole gamut of privilege, and um, I don't know. I just remember you being different. You know, I remember you. Uh, I never really fit in. 
Or at least I never felt like I did. But, you know, thank you. That's, you know, that's a super nice thing to say. Well, I mean it. I just remember we never got, I just remember we never got in a fight. <laughs> no, we didn't. When I was there. Yeah. Well, well, but what would we have fought about? You know? No, these guys fought about dumb stuff. People fight about pride, some girl they're dating, other dumb shit. Yeah. I, I just never had those issues with you. Um, I didn't have issues with you. You know? I mean, no, I, well, it's good. I, and I, and I just, uh, I mean, you weren't easy to get close to, but I didn't have that many friends at that school. You know, I was, I was not, um, I feel like I had a chance to be. Well, you had a real click in your class. Yeah, we did. And I was not in it. <laughs> no, I mean, they were, but you know, they all, cause I, I kind of followed what happened to a lot of them later in life. A lot of them got really fucked up man, on drugs and alcohol, like really fucked up. Like one of the most popular girls in your class, I'm not going to name the name, but she woke up with a cab driver in East New York one morning in his bed naked. Oh, really? That's how much she drank. There's, you know, guys in the class broke their backs because they, they were all taking ecstasy all the time. Like every fucking weekend, that guy from Texas brought up that huge bag of it. And they would all get a hotel room somewhere and, and do X all weekend. It, it fucked all of them up. Yeah, I'm not in touch with any of those guys. I mean, I um, I literally haven't spoken to any of them. I mean, I wouldn't anyway. And they're, I can't imagine they have any interest in anything that might have become of me. But, uh, you know, the, the people who I've been in touch with, and it's been sparse, um, but Damon Parker, I've seen him a couple times in, in Colorado, and Alex McCall. Oh, right on. Um, uh, Demetrius Simeon, <laughs> I connected with him. Who a few I also years ago. got in a fight with. Oh, well, that's too bad. He didn't deserve that. I know, but I, I can know understand he it. I feel bad. Next time you see him, tell him I'm sorry about that. <laughs> well, he he's had quite a um, unexpected road since then. I think you'd be surprised what happened with him. But he's in he's he's an in interesting shape. He's an interesting guy, um, and. Uh, I don't know. There's like just a handful of people that I've been in touch with. It's not a. I have a few people I'm friendly with on Facebook now. You know, from from that era mm -hmm. of my life. No, but, me too. Me too. There's uh, a couple. The only ones I really I talk to Phil Crowder a lot. He's gone through some tough times uh, since school. Uh, there, you know, people have suicides in their family or their parents die. You just you can't help but but feel for the pain they've gone through. And we're at that stage in our life where a lot of people have gone through those kind of pains. Yeah, I know. A lot of years passed and shit happens. Um, I remember also when I when I met our mutual friend, uh, Michael Patrick. I mean, I didn't know for a long time. I think it was sometime, because I met him in Prague. He ran a program that I was teaching for in Prague. Oh, yeah, no, he stayed there. We went over there together because he was my, like, he lived next door to me freshman year at Georgetown. Uh -huh. And then we went over to Czechoslovakia together to teach English right after the revolution. And then I went back the next summer uh, to teach and be part of this CSE conference in Europe that was canceled there. But 
Then he came back again, and they lived there for like a year. Well, that's when I was so there. he was gone like a lot of senior year, I guess. Uh, that's when I was, I didn't know that he was still in school. I thought he was done. Um, but anyway, him and this guy, Jeff, I can't remember Jeff's last name. Um, they ran a program. It was run by someone different every year, but it was a Georgetown program called students for, it was originally students, students for, for Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia. Yeah. yeah. That was the group we were part of. Yeah. And then it changed names. Um, but anyway, he was the, he and this guy, Jeff were the directors and, and I became friendly with both of them, but I think in some ways closer with Michael, um, uh, anyway, at some point, he... Michael's a good dude, man. He's been working for Habitat for Humanity for years, doing great stuff in Eastern Europe and down in Africa. So where does he live? I think he's living in Bratislava now. I saw him, like, my my new wife uh, and I have been married about two years, so we went over, right, like a few months after our marriage for our honeymoon we got a big villa that a bunch of people chipped in, and we met, like, you know, five other couples over there for our honeymoon, and Michael came with his boyfriend at the time, and it was so good to see him again. I would Been love to so see long. that guy. I would love to see that guy. I mean, that's a memory. That was a really... No, he needs to get his, he needs to get his ass back to the United States. He keeps saying he's going to do it, and then he's always like, now I'm living in Madagascar, and you're like, seriously, dude? Come home. I don't know. I think he belongs over there. Like he spoke every language. He spoke. He was a linguist. He spoke Russian and Czech fluently. And oh no, I, he's a total genius. Yeah, I had a Russian girlfriend while I lived over there for a little while, and she came down and no you shit. know, and he was, um, he was the only one who could talk to her because she didn't speak English, I didn't speak Russian, and the two of them would talk for hours, you know. Um, and she just loved him. She's like, you know, Michael, good guy, good man. I very like Michael. <laughs> That's my memory. No, you, you like. No, it's, I, I loved it over there. It was such a good time. So many good people. Yeah. I love, I love Eastern Europe. I love Slavs. I love the Balkans. It's all so much fun. I'm, I'm, they, you're right. That is where Michael belongs. He's got, he's got deep thoughts, man. I think he's just... Um... He seemed very at home over there, you know. There was a piece of him that just seemed really, I don't know. I mean, he understood. I mean, it's a big deal to understand those languages. And he understood the languages, and I feel like it helped him understand the culture. And uh, I always felt like he was a really decent guy. I, um, I don't know. He was, they were, those guys were good to me, you know. Uh, no, they're good. They're good folks. Yeah. Um, and that was a crazy time of my life. My uh, one of my later girlfriends referred to it as the, my Don Juan days of Prague. That was that was sort of my that 18 months that I lived in Europe. At that point, I, I made up for a lot of what I didn't do in high that school was, and college. That was the best time ever to be an American in Europe. There was yeah. there's never been a better time. I yeah. mean, right after the Cold War for like two years, it was awesome. And yeah. then everything suddenly got really expensive. <laughs> yeah plus you know you just were like if all you had to be was american in prague to be like a rock star you know they just they were so excited no, to meet americans and and if you were a halfway decent person and i was approximately halfway decent um you know it just the, a lot of opportunities opened up for you there and and i just i had a lot of fun in prague and and those guys no, i love me, that you know. city totally no no i totally get it i love that city yeah. great city well, I, I know you got to go. I have been there in like 20 years. I do. I got to jump on another uh, call. Um, 
I want to thank you for you know making time to talk to me and uh, and I'm gonna be in, I'm probably gonna be in L.A. for Thanksgiving. So if you're gonna be in town, yeah, dude, I'm gonna be in town. I I'm will, gonna be in town. Well, then, let me know. You know, we should try and see call. each other. Yeah, I'll be staying in Santa Monica. Um, okay, that's not too far away from me. Where are you? What part of town? I never give that shit out okay. online, man. Sorry, no, there's that's people right. who want to kill me. <laughs> well, then uh, we'll meet somewhere anonymous. Um, Sounds good. But, uh, yeah, I'll be staying in Santa Monica, so um, I will let you know where I am, and you can come to me. Uh, right on, bro. But, well, I look forward to seeing you again, man. It's been too many years. I know. And maybe we can get in a fight. Fuck it. <laughs> nah, dude, I'm, I'm done with that phase of my life. I'm just life. kidding. I'm an old man now, man. I'm 47. Well, yeah, me too. I'll, I'll get beaten up. That's fine. I just, not, I'm not, not going to hit anybody. Not by me. Um, no, it'll be, it'll, it'll be great to, you know, connect in person. It's really cool to reconnect over the phone. Um, I've, I've often wondered, you know, what became of you. Your name has been, you know, in my mind because of your father and his, you know, his sort of, uh, his, rise. His occasional of, appearances on CNN. Yeah. Well, he was a public name though. I mean, people knew who he was and he was someone when he spoke, people were interested in his perspective. And that is kind of a great thing. Like, people wanted to know, well, what does Wes Clark think about this? That's how I perceived him for a while. And he was really, uh, I always thought, very sort of rational and, and calm and uh, trustworthy, you know? Um, yeah, no, he was, he, was, he was a good guy. He was a good guy. I mean, you know, he, he was a good dad and, and no complaints about it whatsoever. I got to lead an interesting life, and I got to hear a lot of great dinner conversations every night of my life. Because growing up, you would always have, you know, there were always guests over at dinner, and talk was always foreign policy and history and politics and philosophy, and it left a deep impact on me. Well, it's really cool, man. Well, it's cool to see what you've done with it, and um, I want to see you before you uh, head out to... Before protect, I get my ass kicked? To protect the oil pipelines. That's not a small thing to take on, but I think it's very interesting that you're going with a bunch of unarmed veterans. That fascinates me. So, you know, well, I, listen, when, there's, there's, no, there's no call for violence or people burning effigies or burning the flag or bad-mouthing Americans or anything like that. If, if, if you have the courage of your beliefs, you should stand up for it and take the beating and use nonviolence because that's what our Lord Jesus Christ used. Well, it's very Gandhi-esque, too. You know, that was how Gandhi ultimately overthrew the British, was his peaceful resistance. Um, so, you know, what I'd love to do is do a follow-up with you when you get back. Yeah, uh, absolutely, bro. Cause no it, problem. That'll be an amazing series of stories to hear. How long do you think you'll be out there? Is that indefinite? or? Well, no. I mean, from the probably the 3rd to the 8th, but... Okay. Um, if I'm in jail, I mean, whenever I get out of jail, I'll let you know. <laughs> well, if you're in jail, I'm sure I'll find out about it. It's not often that I partake in a conversation where I can't get a word in edgewise and feel good about it. But that's what happened with Wes. And you know what? I'm totally okay with that. If you enjoyed hearing me talk, or should I say listen, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. Visit our website, use our Amazon portal, and make sure you tell your friends about learning to fail. If you feel so inclined, please consider making a donation on our donation page. That way, we can keep failing for generations to come.